to History Man 1781, a project of ekbarns.com, where we walk in the footsteps of heroes and proclaim freedom reigns. On today's podcast, we are featuring Jim Pikich and the Cavalry of the American Revolution. Jim is the author of seven books, uh, one of which is The Battle of Camden, a documentary history, and the other one, which we are talking about today, is The Cavalry of the American Revolution. Welcome, Jim. Thank you, Eric. Jim, the cavalry uh, history in the American Revolution is interesting uh, to me because it's actually the genesis of the cavalry in the United States. Tell us how this came about and how it became a book for you. Okay. The book itself uh, came as a result of a conference uh, that was held several years ago, uh, co-sponsored by Southern Campaigns of the American Revolution and the South Carolina Historical Society and focusing on cavalry. And I discussed the topic with the conference organizers. I noticed that there had been very little work done specifically on cavalry. And we agreed that it would be a good idea if we could get some of the participants at the conference to put their presentations into a longer written form and compile a book on the cavalry. We weren't able, of course, because of the scope to do a completely comprehensive look at the cavalry, but to look at various aspects of cavalry in the American Revolution, uh, each author focusing on one element that they uh, were most qualified to deal with based on their own research and their interests. So we were able to do that and publish that. Well, thank you uh, so much for, for saying that. that. That actually, when I was going through uh, some of the history uh, in South Carolina, it, it struck me several different points. Number one, when the ships came down uh, uh, for England and they were coming down to Charleston, I believe there was a shipwreck where a lot of the horses died. And then they came into Charleston, and then all of a sudden, Charleston ends up with this cavalry unit. And I'm thinking to myself, well, how did he get this cavalry unit if all the horses died? And then, how did he chase Buford all the way up to the Waxhaws from Charleston? And how far can you expect a horse to go on any given day without just being so tired out that he's, he's, he becomes incapacitated and not, uh, not worth uh, uh, anything when it comes to battle? So those things were in my mind. And when I found this book and found you, I was so excited about having you here. So can you explain the uh, genesis of the cavalry? Okay, when the revolution began, the American revolutionaries had no real experience with cavalry. There had been a very few small militia cavalry units organized in New England uh, during King Philip's War in the 17th century, uh, but it had fallen out of use. And when George Washington was appointed commander-in-chief of the Continental Army, he decided that cavalry would not be of use in the geographic, physical conditions of the New England, New York, New Jersey area. He argued that with all of the wooden fences, the stone walls, the woodlots, the scattered buildings, that cavalry just wouldn't be able to move. And he did have... In New York in 1776, uh, the state of Connecticut actually created a mounted militia unit of roughly 500 men and sent them to Washington's army. I see. And Washington didn't know what to do with them. Uh, obviously, the 
the British had not landed yet, so uh, there wasn't too much for the cavalry to do except uh, for the men to consume provisions and for the horses to consume forage that Washington thought would be better used uh, to support the uh, baggage horses and the artillery horses, the ones that drew the wagons and the cannons. So he ordered that militia back home. Because he didn't need it. So what? What about what year was that? Was that uh, 1775 or 76? That was the spring of 76. Spring, spring of 76, summer. before the British landed. Right. Okay. And Washington, once the British did land, he got very concerned. Uh, his troops uh, were suffering from cavalry shock. He'd have patrols and detachments out. The British, strangely enough, sent over only two of their 20-plus regiments of cavalry that they had on hand, the 16th and the 17th Light Dragoons. And in 1778 or 9, they actually recalled the 16th Light Dragoons uh, to Britain. So uh, the British didn't place uh, as much of a premium as they probably should have on cavalry either. But the 16th and 17th Light Dragoons uh, were would be patrolling and they would attack American detachments. The Americans would flee and Washington was upset and in the general orders to his troops regarding the cavalry of the British army he said there's no enemy more to be despised so in other words don't be afraid of these guys now and he offered a reward for anyone who would bring in a captured cavalry man with their equipment and he continued in that vein until October of 1776 at the Battle of White Plains where the British cavalry made a key attack that forced Washington to abandon his position and as he retreated from New York and across New Jersey, he began rethinking his views on cavalry. And just before Christmas in 1776, he wrote to the Continental Congress asking them to authorize the creation of cavalry regiments. And in his letter, he wrote, there is no carrying on the war without them. So you can see Washington's adaptability, his recognition that, wait, this is not the type of war I envisioned. I have to adjust. I'm, I'm not afraid to change my mind. So how did the cavalry different, uh, how was that different than the mounted riflemen like uh, Daniel Morgan and the, the guys from the west, uh, the Allegheny Mountains? How was that different? The cavalry effectively fought on horseback. Theoretically, most of the cavalry units, British and American, in the uh, Revolution were referred to as dragoons. And according to the actual formal European definition, a dragoon was an infantryman who could fight on foot but could also move and fight on horseback. However, the dragoons in America were really straight-up cavalry. Many of them had no infantry training, but yeah, many troops, Francis Mary in the same way, he moved his troops on horseback, right. dismounted and engaged the enemy on foot. His right. men were not trained to fight on foot. They were not equipped to fight on foot because if you try to load, a pistol is almost useless except at a few feet range, and if you're trying to load a musket on horseback, uh, it's not going to do you much good. You need a saber. So, so they were not trained. You said they were not trained to fight on foot. You're saying they're not trained to fight on horse. They're not tra- trained to fight on horseback. Okay. They right. they know they can fight on foot, which requires 
especially for a lot of people in the colonies who were familiar with hunting and right. experience in right. conflict with the natives. Uh, they had some idea of how to fight on foot, but fighting on horseback requires a certain degree of training and skill. Right. Um, so for our listeners, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about the accoutrements that you would find with a, a, um, for the different types of cavalry that are out there. I understand when we were talking prior to our taping, you were talking about the different types of cavalry that were out there uh, in the world of fighting. Uh, in, in warfare at that time. You had heavy cavalry, you had light cavalry, uh, and you had the dragoons. Walk us through some of that nomenclature. Okay, heavy cavalry was a more general definition and referred to cavalry that was equipped and trained to engage on horseback enemy cavalry and also enemy infantry on the battlefield. Uh, light cavalry could engage enemy cavalry uh, take part in scouting, reconnaissance, raiding, but were not expected to engage infantry. Uh, within those two categories, uh, for example, there were dragoons who were supposed to be, as I said, theoretically trained as infantry and as cavalry, uh, but in practice uh, in the British and American armies were actually trained and served as cavalry. Uh, there were heavy dragoons, which we did not see in the revolution. Okay. There, and the dragoons in the revolution were all designated light dragoons. Uh, although in some cases they did engage infantry. You mentioned uh, the Waxhaws, uh, William Washington's Continental Dragoons at Utah Springs uh, did engage infantry on occasion, uh, sometimes with success, sometimes uh, disastrously. But uh, it did occur. Uh, but they were generally used as light cavalry, uh, which would consider, uh, be not only light dragoons, uh, but Hussars, uh, the Queen's Rangers, a loyalist unit recruited in the New York area, designated their cavalry Hussars after a uh, Serbian and Hungarian title uh, that was popular in Europe, uh, who were used primarily in raiding as well as scouting. Okay. They, right. But uh, they were famed for their raiding abilities. Uh, there was one other unit that we saw on the American side, uh, Kazimir Pulaski, who came from Poland, uh, created this when he was given, uh, he was promoted to Brigadier General, and uh, he was considered the father of the American cavalry because he trained those uh, four regiments of Continental Light Dragoons that Congress authorized in response to Washington's request. And he later got command of his own legion. That's another term that we need to consider. A legion, it was considered the cavalry sometimes by themselves without infantry support would be vulnerable to infantry. On the other hand, infantry augmented by cavalry might have an advantage against other infantry or cavalry. So both sides created what was called a legion. Pulaski had a legion of American cavalry and light infantry. Henry Lee later uh, had his famous legion of cavalry and light infantry. Uh, the British legion of loyalist troops was also cavalry and light infantry. Uh, the Queen's Rangers, uh, the unit I mentioned, was also a legion, a mixture of uh, cavalry and light infantry. Uh, but that last category that Pulaski, uh, in, the Poles were famous for their lancers. These were cavalrymen, normal accoutrements for cavalry. Uh, you had your, your horse tack and fittings, a saddle, bridle, whatnot. Uh, cavalry generally wore very high boots, although in practice only a few dismounted Hessian units uh, actually wore those in America, but 
they had shorter jackets, not the long coats uh, that you would have seen on the infantry so that it wouldn't be in their way when they mounted or dismounted quickly. Uh, they generally had uh, a carbine. In many cases, they didn't actually have the weapon, especially the Americans, so they would simply uh, saw the barrel of a musket uh, to reduce its length because, again, a long musket several feet long is difficult uh, to handle on horseback. A carbine is shorter uh, and easier to handle, although not particularly accurate. One or two pistols, which, again, are not very useful and also still difficult to reload when you're mounted, uh, but yeah, they can kill at a few feet. The key weapon was a saber, and this was an area where the Americans had some trouble at first. They often had to enlist blacksmiths to make sabers by hand uh, from raw steel or, or tools or whatever they had available. Uh, the British cavalry was equipped with sabers, and uh, this was the, the key weapon in fighting either another cavalryman or a, uh, an infantry uh, group. The lance is a completely different weapon. Uh, used properly by a well-trained cavalryman, it's about 15 feet. It's basically a 15-foot spear, roughly 15 feet. It could right. be 18 feet, uh, depending on uh, who made it, generally uh, given the uh, irregularity of standard size for equipment in the right. Revolution. Uh, might vary, but uh, Pulaski, the Poles were famous for their lancers, their mm -hmm. uh, cavalry armed with lances. And uh, Napoleon later, recruited large numbers of Polish lancers. Uh, they fought throughout his campaigns, even at Waterloo. So Pulaski wanted to create lancers for the cavalry of his legion, which he did. They fought in a feudal charge where he was killed at Savannah, Georgia in 1779. His troops never were really effective with the lance, and they had to abandon it after his death. Because the problem with the lance is, if you don't hit your opponent, that moving target, and you're also moving, in your first pass, you're completely vulnerable. This is kind of like jousting. Yeah, exactly. Right? It's like so, jousting. Yeah. And if, if you miss... I mean, this is a carryover from yeah. the Middle Ages is what it is. Yeah. Yeah, okay. E except you're jousting against someone who is armed with a, with a saber. That's right. And who, if they could dodge your lance, can now ride in and you are defenseless. You're holding this lance tucked under your arm, which you can't really drop because that's your weapon. Right. And you have no way to fend off that saber attack. So sure. with Pulaski's death, the lances were abandoned. I see. So there's a story. Uh, one of the battles for Sumter was at Juniper Springs, which is over in Lexington County on the other side of the uh, Saluda River from Columbia. <clears throat> and uh, they rode into battle without any swords. And they took on the, uh, I guess, a... Uh, a light cavalry unit of the British, and they got just, it was like a running battle, but they just got hacked to death all the way. The The fact is, they just didn't have any swords, and yep. you were talking about that. And uh, when you go up to the New England states, uh, then even in the colonial period, you had, you know, a town about every, every 10 miles or so apart from each other, and you had a blacksmith in each town or so. When you get down to South Carolina, in the back country, those towns didn't exist, right? That's right? You didn't have the blacksmiths. You didn't have the iron ore. You had, <clears throat> there was really only two ironworks. You had Hills Irons Works, and you had another ironwork up in uh, up in Spartanburg, and that was yeah. basically the amount of ironworks you had. And uh, 
So getting swords, getting those accoutrements was tough for the, the American soldiers down here. How did, they, how did they arm their soldiers? Well, the first cavalry units that came down here, and this gets back to your original remarks about how did Tarleton get his horses. Yeah, yeah. Um, the British fleet uh, that sailed to attack Charleston late in 1779 and ended up capturing Charleston in May of 1780, it, w- it would almost be laughable if it wasn't for the misery of the people and animals aboard that fleet. Everything went wrong. This, they got hit by repeated storms. One ship was actually dismasted and came ashore in England. It was driven by the winds all the way across the Atlantic. The naval officers took the fleet farther out to sea, hoping to avoid the storms, got caught up in the Gulf Stream, and were actually losing ground for several days. So this is days. 1779. Late 1779 to February 1780. Okay. So, yeah, so there were some days where they actually, at the end of the day, were farther north than they were at the, when the sun had risen because the Gulf Street was uh, carrying them and there was no uh, wind from the north to, to drive them south. So it was a disaster. And what happened with the horse transports, thrown about badly in a storm and the horse's legs were broken. So oh they had to do the same thing that's done now with horses with a broken leg. They had to execute them. So they threw the horses overboard and shot them in the water. Fed the sharks. Yep. And so when Tarleton landed, his unit, Patrick Ferguson's unit, and some others did not land uh, south of Charleston with the main army. They landed at Savannah, picked up some of the British garrison there, and marched up overland. And on their way north, they impressed horses, some of them good plantation horses, some of them not so good, but where they uh, did themselves a big favor. Washington had been sending troops constantly because he knew the British were moving against Charleston and wanted to reinforce it. So he had sent the North Carolina Continentals, uh, infantry, the, the Virginia Continental Infantry, and then he sent two of his four Continental Cavalry regiments, William Washington's regiment, Anthony Walton White's regiment. And those units fought Tarleton twice in April and early May of 1779 at Biggins Bridge and Monk's Corner, and uh, Tarleton literally cut them to pieces. He surprised them both times. One time, they were actually napping along the banks of the Santee River uh, when Tarleton learned they were there and just rode in on them. They had actually captured some of Tarleton's men earlier uh, who were being rowed across the Santee, and the uh, prisoners grabbed their guards, threw them in the water, (laughs) and rowed themselves back. Uh, White and Washington only escaped by swimming the river. Really? But the two cavalry units were almost annihilated by Tarleton in those battles. And as a result, he captured all of their horses, all of their equipment, saddles, sabers. So from that moment oh. on, they were riding into battle with American, American equipment. Yeah, largely. I mean, they, his men still had their own sabers and other equipment, but he had the American horses, plus he had all of the surplus equipment. Uh, so as he recruited for his British Legion's cavalry, uh, locally, uh, which he did get uh, well over 100 recruits. Uh, he had equipment for them uh, from the uh, captured material, plus he could replace his battle losses. When they took over Charleston and they started heading for Beaufort, who had, had turned around uh, after Lennon's Ferry, Charleston was taking Lennon's Ferry, Beaufort realized that he couldn't give them any hope. Uh, he couldn't... He couldn't uh, 
you know, come into the lines and help the Continentals at any point. So he turned around and started heading back to, to North Carolina, uh, and he gets to the Waxhaws up the Great Wagon Road. Now, that's even today to get to Charleston from the wagon from from the Waxhaws. That's that's at least two hours two two hours to get to to Charleston. So that's 120 miles, right? Right. So that seems like a long way for Bannister Tarleton to take his cavalry after they've been in they've already been in battle and now they're going after Buford. How did they maintain that cavalry unit? Uh, and was he a legion at that point? Did he have infantry? He was at a that legion. Time? He had his because he had infantry. some. He had some. Uh, didn't he have some cannons with him as he, well? He had two three pounders. Like how did they? Pieces, how did they close the gap yeah. there? Um, for one thing, Buford came to Camden and then rested for a few days. I see. Then uh, it was rainy off and on, and Buford had baggage wagons. He had artillery. Uh, he had some loyalist prisoners that he was trying to prevent the British from freeing. Uh, and so he was just marching fairly slowly. Uh, he had a good head start. Tarleton was a driver. Uh, he pushed himself. He pushed his men. Uh, he was extremely aggressive. And he had. Uh, he was ordered by Lord Cornwallis to catch Buford or drive him out of South Carolina because Cornwallis didn't want this Continental Regiment to serve as a nucleus for resistance uh, to coalesce around. So Tarleton set out that from the beginning of his pursuit until he caught up with Buford. He covered 105 miles. He did it in 54 hours. So uh, that is... On the same horses? No, they would swap out horses. Sometimes the cavalry would ride double with the line infantry. Well, I know they did that at the very end, right? So. Yeah, and sometimes the light infantry would hold on to the cavalryman's stirrup and run alongside and sort of get pulled. As the horses gave out, they would simply impress horses nearby uh, from farms or plantations. They would just so say, you had, here, you had, here's our horses, give us whatever you have. Did they go into Statesburg and, and call people together then steal their horses at that time or is that another story yeah you know? that's another story okay. yeah right. yeah they were right. they were just gathering up horses along the route of the march right. to replace that's the ones that were too fatigued that's uh, right. and and it was not consistent weather and it, remember there's no paved roads you, a lot of these roads are just soft sand pits almost it's raining off and on so sometimes they're mud but he just pushes his troops they don't all, not all 270 are there because he designated a place for the stragglers to collect. That's so right. uh, when he actually attacks Buford, who has 350 infantry, plus some militia and some remnants of uh, Washington's and White's cavalry, uh, he has probably well under 250 men, including one troop, which is the cavalry equivalent of an infantry company from the British uh, 17th Light Dragoons, regular troops. All right, so we got uh, we got Buford, and now he's uh, you know his his unit is hacked to death up there at Waxhaws, and he gets all these Scotch Irish all upset up there, right? So, yeah. But uh, he now now Tarleton has this big baggage train. What does he do with it? Well, Tarleton captures everything. He captures Buford's artillery, six pounders, which were generally the largest uh, piece of field artillery used at the time, uh, which incidentally. Uh, talking about Buford uh, a little bit, he did not deploy his artillery. He sent his baggage train on while he 
positioned his troops to meet Tarleton's attack. Uh, he made a whole litany of mistakes that William Moultrie and others chronicled later. Uh, he did not have his men fix bayonets. Uh, bayonet. well, they wait, and they waited too late. Yeah. He told his men basically not to fire until the British were about 10 yards away, which means that even if you do fire and hit something, the horse's momentum is going to carry them into your lines anyway. So his troops only get off one volley, and then the British cavalry are on them uh, just hacking away uh, in a melee where the, um, the Americans are brutally defeated. Uh, some people charge massacre. Uh, There's the, a lot of propaganda on that yeah, side. Yeah, right? the, the real <laughs> massacre stories don't emerge in print until the early 1800s. Uh, other people circulate it verbally, but nobody at the time refers to it as a massacre of, in, in any official capacity. Continental officers, Governor John Rutledge of South Carolina, uh, Virginia officials. The one thing Virginia officials do uh, make sure of is that when Buford gets back to Virginia, he never leads troops to the field again. So the whole idea of Buford's quarter or Tarleton's quarter that supposedly, according to historians, rung out uh, in just about every battle after that, is that true or is that not true? Well, People believed it, and they shouted out, yeah, meaning give no quarter, don't take any prisoners, uh, because Certainly did that at King's Mountain. Definitely. Yeah. 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 And they certainly believed that Tarleton had refused to take prisoners. Uh, My own work, I've looked at every pension application we could find, and, you know, I should thank uh, people, uh, the people involved, who uh, helped gather these pension applications for the Southern Campaign's website and elsewhere. Uh, but not, there is not one pension application submitted by a Waxhaw survivor who mentions, uh, and some of them report being wounded multiple times in the action, but none of them report being wounded after surrendering or tra- while trying to surrender. None of them report seeing anyone uh, killed or injured after surrendering. In fact, in Tarleton's own report, uh, I think he said that his sh- horse was shot out from under him and that if anything happened as he was underneath the horse or trying to extricate himself from the horse, uh, it was just part of the battle. Yeah. So. And a few of his men may have thought that their commander had been killed and right. been enraged and right. shot a few people unnecessarily or bayoneted or sabered a few people unnecessarily. And it's not like they were going to the mall to, to pick up dresses or anything, right? So no. they were in... They were in war. Right? Yeah, exactly. And yeah, Buford and Buford had had splayed his men out in a in a uh, combative way. That's right. Yeah, he's formed line of battle. It's kind of kind of hard to really fault Tarleton for doing what Tarleton was there to do, right? So, yeah. If you're if you're on horseback with a saber, and there's 240 of you and more than 350 of the enemy, yeah, you're probably not going to stop and question somebody who's holding their musket in a unfamiliar posture whether they're reloading or whether they're preparing to lay it down or what they're doing you're you're going to swing out with your saber before that person has a chance to all in the matter of seconds right exactly the battle lasts only a matter of minutes so where'd they go from there uh tarleton lord cornwallis is on his way with a detachment of the army to camden and cornwallis falls back there to tarleton falls tarleton falls back there to unite with cornwallis to bring the captured goods in and to establish a forward base for the British along the great wagon road that led to Charlotte. Wow. So thank you. This looks like it's going to be at least a two-part series. So we're going to uh, 
to cut it off right here. And uh, I'm looking forward to the next one. And uh, so thank you so much. Appreciate You're welcome. It. I enjoyed it.